scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, in December of 1864, the Civil War was waning. And as Christmas approached, President Lincoln hadn't heard much from especially one of his generals, General Sherman. It had been several weeks. Sherman was on an advance in the southern part of the U.S., and Lincoln became anxious. But just before Christmas, a few days, he received a telegram from General Sherman beginning like this. I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah. So Sherman had captured one of the last major Confederate ports and gave it as a Christmas gift, in a way, to the president. And what a relief. What good news for Lincoln. Now, whether you kind of tend to side with the North or the South, I think we're Northern enough to be safe using that as an example. Wherever you fall on that, I always love it in stories, whether fact or fiction, when things seem sad or hopeless, and then comes the good news. The man scrambles through the trenches to deliver the message to the general. The war's over. Or the doctor comes out of the operating room with that relieved smile. He will live. And if you think about it, we all deliver news, don't we? Whether it's good or bad, we all as mailmen or ambassadors or receptionists or Facebook users are our newscasters making efforts to tell people what we think they should know. Last week, we began a study in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this book is the letter written by Paul, one of the earliest Christian missionaries, and he's writing to a new church that had just started a short time before. So Paul had been preaching in that city, Thessalonica, which is now modern-day Greece, Thessaloniki, but he had been forced to leave because the authorities got onto him and were after him to arrest him. So he ran to Berea, 
Then he ran to Athens. And this letter finds him in Corinth. But throughout those kind of the, the fleeing of the Jewish authorities, Paul had just been increasingly concerned with how this new church of believers in Thessalonica was doing. I mean, he had had to leave so abruptly. He couldn't say goodbye. And so he sent Timothy to see how they were doing. And when he finally received the report from Timothy that the church was doing well, even in persecution, that's when he sat down and wrote this letter that we're studying, a letter full of encouragement to these new Christians. And this morning, we're going to look at the first part of chapter two. And we see here Paul reflecting on his ministry to the Thessalonians. Dan just read that for us. And in particular, this morning, let's use our time to just see four ways Paul effectively communicated the gospel. And I hope by looking at those four things, we'll be challenged in how we communicate the good news about Jesus. So four things. First, Paul spoke boldly. Second, Paul feared rightly. Third, Paul loved sacrificially. And finally, Paul walked righteously. So first, Paul spoke boldly. Look in verse 1. Paul says that his coming to the Thessalonians was not in vain. His ministry in that city had not been pointless. No, his message had had purpose and power, and the impact on the people had proved effective. As we saw last week, the word of God had come with power by the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, we see that Paul had come in boldness to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So conflict had been following Paul around. It, it always did. So before coming to Thessalonica, Paul had been preaching in the city of Philippi, and it was there that he says here in verse 2 that he had already suffered and been shamefully treated. And we get more info on that in Acts chapter 16. We see what had happened. So Paul had been ministering, but he'd been pestered by the slave girl who was possessed by a spirit. And so he was just annoyed by her because she would constantly just be following them around, hollering. And so finally, he just turned to the girl and by the power of God, he cast the spirit from her. She was probably happy about that. But the problem was that she had been a fortune teller and she brought in a lot of cash to those who owned her. And so when her owners found out about this, they became angry and they went after Paul and Silas and dragged them before the city authorities. They had had their clothes ripped off and had beaten them thoroughly with rods and thrown them in prison. However, even in their jail cells, God had done a mighty work in the weakness of Paul and Silas. He had sent an earthquake that rattled the prison. The jailer and his whole family had trusted in Christ and Paul and Silas the next morning had been released to leave the city. And so Paul shows up in Thessalonica here, sore, bruised from a severe beating for the gospel. He came and he, as he stretched out his arm to preach, you could see the whiplashes on his shoulders and his arms and his elbows. And, and yet he came boldly declaring the good news. Suffering didn't stop Paul from being bold with the gospel. No, it propelled him on to further boldness. I, I, I'm sure the threat of death sobered him and scared him, but it certainly didn't shut him up. Suffering couldn't silence him. And if suffering couldn't silence Paul, what could? The Romans, the Jews, no one could silence this man who was joyfully willing to give even his life for the message of Christ. And history is filled with examples of God's spirit filling his people with great courage to proclaim the gospel. 
So I think of Polycarp, one of the first martyrs of the early church who was confronted with death unless he condemned Christ. And he stood there in front of those who could kill him. And he said, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I think of Martin Luther standing before the Diet of Worms saying, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. I think of Hugh Latimer being burned at the stake with Nicholas Ridley and saying as the flames grew higher, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Church, all throughout the centuries, those who have followed Christ have been subjected to the worst suffering, but that has only strengthened their bold witness. They knew what Paul would write later to the Roman church, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. The joy of God's people is untouchable as long as it is rooted in him. Paul didn't preach himself or his own skills. He preached Christ crucified for sinners. And in the midst of much conflict, he boldly spoke. Suffering was just a fertile ground to continue to speak boldly about a suffering savior. Paul spoke boldly. Next, Paul feared rightly. Look in verse three. Paul spent some time discounting any sinful motivations he might have had for his preaching. So scholars debate whether Paul was actually being accused in these ways by people in Thessalonica or if he's just merely trying to distance himself from other kind of teachers of his day. But whatever the case, Paul is defending adamantly his ministry to the Thessalonians. So there were plenty of charlatans teaching religion and speaking publicly at that time in order to get wealth. They transfer, go from city to city, get benefits from people. But Paul here is adamant. He's not like that. He says, we didn't preach to you from error or impurity or deception. Elsewhere, Paul will say, I'm not a gospel peddler. I'm not a Jesus telemarketer trying to sell God and church paraphernalia to the gullible. His gospel's message, says Paul, is not fake news. It's not false doctrine. He wasn't preaching Jesus to get stuff. He wasn't motivated by greed or lust like many of the other preachers would have been. No, his gospel was pure. It was the undiluted message of Jesus. He didn't come with ulterior motives. He didn't come to deceive or trick. There were no sleight of hands in his ministry. Actually, when he raised out his hands, they bore the marks of suffering for the true gospel. And it was that true gospel that he would continue to preach. There in verse four, he says he has been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. See, Paul was an apostle. He was sent by God to the early church to communicate the truth about Jesus. That was his wonderful task given him by the very king of the universe. That was his job title. And so when he spoke, he did so out of fear of God. This deep reverential awe of his creator, not out of fear of what others would think of him. Paul feared rightly. He spoke not to please man, but to please God who tests hearts. You see, Paul was convinced that God's opinion of him was the most, opinion, most important opinion of all because he was not approved by others, but by God. And that's all that mattered. You know, if you're like me, friend, and you read kind of, what Lee read for us earlier from 2 Corinthians and you read this passage and you see Paul's boldness, maybe sometimes you just say, yeah, 
I think if I was in his shoes and I got whipped within an inch of my life, I wouldn't have continued on the Thessalonica. I would have given up. I would have said, you know, I would have renounced Christ and quickly turned and asked for forgiveness, right? But if that's something you think, I wonder what Paul would have said to you. Because it is so evident over and over again that his confidence was rooted in the message he had been given by God. His confidence was never rooted in his own ability or his extroverted personality. He was confident even in weakness because he knew the power of God. Power to shake a prison wide open in an earthquake. Power to cast a demon out of a fortune-telling girl. Power to turn the biggest Christian hater, Paul himself, into the most famous Christian missionary in history. Paul did not fear what his enemies would bring. He knew who his God was. Christian, don't ever underestimate God's power at work through your weak words, your weak efforts. If you're tempted to despair this morning, especially in your fear of sharing the gospel with someone, a a coworker or a parent or a sibling or a neighbor, just think for a second about who you ultimately fear. Do you fear your neighbor? Or do you fear the God who made your neighbor? Who are you seeking to please? A few months ago, I just found myself on a Sunday morning filled with worry about this church. And as I prayed, the Lord just convicted me that every source of my fear was rooted in how you all would think of me, not how God would think of me. I had forgotten how big God was and I had made you all like mammoth-sized in my heart. And that crippled me. That paralyzed me. I think the same is true of any of us. Christian, the fear of man, the, the need to please others around you will cripple your obedience to your loving God. So in what ways are you making God tiny and other people huge in your heart? Our reticence to speak of Christ in our everyday interactions with others shows that clearly, I think. A desire to please others over God I mean, I must call it what it is in my heart, and I think we all must. Constant silence when it comes to speaking of Christ is sin. Our Savior died to cover our sin, and it's that very sin that makes us ashamed to speak of how he died to cover our sin. And so Paul understood that God knew his heart. He had no intention to cover up his motives. God, the heart tester, knew him inside and out. And so as long as he preached the truth of the gospel, man could do whatever they wanted to. He was secure in the hands of the Lord. So dear church, we must repent of our sin of man-pleasing, especially in the area of speaking the gospel. This past week, where have you been silent when you should have spoken? Where have you been content with small talk when you knew there was an opportunity to go deeper? This coming week, are you willing to offend someone in order to speak Christ to them? I don't like sermons like this. A lot of sermons on sharing the gospel can just leave Christians that love Jesus feeling discouraged and beat down like a ton of bricks was crashing into their conscience. Brothers and sisters, I promise you, as you proclaim allegiance to Jesus and speak to others about him, you're going to be filled with joy. 
This isn't just about obedience. This is about joy. Don Whitney puts it this way, only the sheer rapture of being lost in the worship of God is as exhilarating and even intoxicating as telling someone about Jesus. So Christian, are you lacking joy this morning? Are you feeling distant from God today? Go tell someone about Jesus. Paul did not seek glory from people, but from God himself. So stop worshiping the praise of others. That will be the death knell to your evangelism. Seek the glory of God and you will be filled with joy. Paul spoke boldly. He feared rightly. And thirdly, he loved sacrificially. We see this there at the end of verse 6. Paul says it was well within his rights to make certain demands of these new Christians at Thessalonica. Paul was an apostle after all. He was well respected by those who were coming to Christ. He could have come in and thrown his weight around. Uh, wielded his authority, required things of people that heard him. In all fairness, but he didn't. In verse 9, Paul brings this up again with regards to financial support. He says he worked night and day so as not to be a burden to the new church. So at other times in the Bible, we see Paul was supported financially by churches. I'm really glad that you guys support me financially. But here at Thessalonica, he doesn't want to take anything from them. He's not going to be like other false teachers out for a quick buck. No, he will support himself so he can proclaim the gospel without hindrance. From other parts of scripture, we know Paul was a tent maker. That was his occupation. And so he worked diligently so that he might pour out his life for the message of Christ. Some even think it was in his very office where he made tents that he invited people in to hear about Jesus. He loved the people God was bringing to himself. He had rights, but he didn't use them. And as I thought about that this week, I, I was sobered. I, I wonder if you find yourself defensive of your rights this morning, Christian. Especially as like American Christians. I mean, rights is what we're built on here. And, and that's all fine and good. But in your marriage in your workplace, in your church? Is your whole mindset just primarily focused on protecting your rights, keeping it this far? Or is your life completely available to be used by God for whatever he deems best? Are your rights kind of hills for you to die on? Are you willing to surrender those hills and love others? just as Christ laid down his rights to love you. I remember how Paul puts it in his letter to the church at Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, talk about rights, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're with us. And we just want to be clear, this is the gospel we believe. It's the truth that God created you and me to be perfect and to serve him and reflect his glory to the world. That's where we would be brought most joy. He created us to reflect his glory. 
but each of us has rebelled against that purpose. We've turned him. All we want to reflect is, is our own glory. All we want is for people to see how great we are. We have served ourselves and we've used others to get what we want. And so as God, as judge and creator, has promised to treat that rebellion in the way that it deserves, and that is death and separation from God's love forever. But praise God, he didn't stop there. He didn't leave us in our sin. Jesus, the one whose glory we were meant to reflect, gave up his glory like we just read. And he took the form of a man and he came and died in our place for our sin. Jesus stood in the very spot that we would have stood to receive God's punishment. And he took it for us. Death and separation from God's love. Also that we might be accepted by God. So friend, you will never be received by God because you do good works. Only if you repent of your rebellion and turn in faith to Christ will you be saved. Won't, won't you turn to him today? Well, Paul loved the church sacrificially by working to sustain his own ministry, by working as a tent maker. But he goes on in verse 7 to say that he was gentle among them, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He desired not only to give them the gospel, but also his very self. That's how much he loved them. That's how much he wanted them to know Jesus. You know, I'll be honest, one of the hardest parts of sermon preparation for me is coming up with illustrations that will make you listen. Paul does the hard work for me here, right? He comes up with a pretty vivid illustration. His love for the Thessalonian church is like a mother's love for her kids. It's a love that cares, that's intimate, that knows needs even before they're voiced. It's affectionate, tireless, selfless, and so, dear church family, Paul sets here a good example for us and how we should care for one another. Remember in chapter one that we looked at last week, the Thessalonians were encouraged to imitate Paul. And so should we. And if we desire real, transparent, loving community in this body of believers, we will need to sacrifice for it. Our love will not always be comfortable or convenient for us. It will look like the love of Christ. Church members, are you willing to love others in that way? Even if it brings you discomfort, even if it brings you pain. I mean, true, sincere Christian community will not be reached by shortcuts. Only as we are made more like Jesus and go through the painful process of confronting our sin and confronting our sin in others and loving others and pointing them to Jesus, having our pride broken in pieces, will we truly begin to love one another like Paul, like Christ. And church, let me just say that I see that in you. Let me praise you for a second and praise God for evidences among you of being a church that loves each other, that's patient with each other, that serves one another. Of course we don't do that perfectly, but let's strive to. <laughs> strive to one, love one another in the way that Jesus has loved us. Let's think carefully about what it would mean to give even our own selves to the glory of God. Paul spoke boldly. He feared rightly. He loved sacrificially. Finally, he walked righteously. Verse 10. 
He says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. So Paul's not only a spiritual mother to this new church, he says he's a spiritual father. So kind of the nourishing component of a mother in the same way he's an exhorting authority of a father in verse 11. Like a father, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. See, Paul didn't just bring a message about Jesus. He lived the message about Jesus. He lived in light of God's commands and sought to obey and please God with his life. His own life testified to the good news he proclaimed. Paul was all in with God. He wasn't just going to pay lip service like those other false teachers, those sophists. He had devoted his very life to his Savior. He was holy to God. He was going to be righteous in the way that he worked within the church. He was going to be blameless in his dealings with outsiders. God was his witness. He had nothing to hide. And church, as, as one of your elders, that sobers me. Because I can try to do a lot of things in my feebleness to lead you to Jesus. But if I don't love him, if I don't turn away from temptation to lust and greed, if I don't seek to kill my sin in my heart, if I don't seek to dwell with God in contentment, if I don't seek to become more like Jesus, I'm in danger of proving myself a fake and leading you all astray. The great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane put it best when he said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. It wasn't his preaching. It wasn't small groups. It wasn't children's programs. It wasn't a dynamic personality. It wasn't a big church. It wasn't a nice environment. It was the seriousness of his walk with God that was the most important thing for the flourishing of his church. And I don't think that ends with pastors. I mean, last week we talked about the importance of being a church, a Christian worth imitating among the church. Remember that? And here again, we're reminded that we can serve on setup. That's awesome. We need that. We can serve in kids' ministry. We can do small groups. We can bring meals to each other. We can do everything that we're supposed to do to build community at this new church. We may have it all together and just look good, but we will never be helpful to the growth of this church unless each of us prioritizes, first and foremost, our own commitment to Christ, our own humility, our own personal holiness. And so fathers, mothers, older siblings, elders, deacons, members, it's a foregone conclusion that you will have people imitating you. So when they do, are they going to become more holy? Are they going to fall deeper in love with Jesus? Church, we need Jesus. Church is a miserable place if we come just trying to look good and impress other people. We need Jesus because we need to come broken and incredibly in need of a beautiful Savior. We were once all lost, but now we have new life in Christ. And so Paul can encourage us, like he encouraged the Thessalonians, to walk in a manner worthy of God because there's no way we could do that before. But now there's every way in the world we can through Christ. Oh, may we throw ourselves on his grace yet again this morning. May, may we be faithful newscasters. 
the good news that Jesus is king. He's given his life for us. May the lifeblood of Jesus pulse through our veins. May the witness of our lives and the words from our mouths speak of Jesus. Let's be bold. Let's fear God. Let's love each other. And let's walk in devotion to the king. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you. We can so often fool ourselves into thinking that we've got this covered. But the message of the gospel confronts us yet again this morning. We had nothing to bring to the table except our own misery. But you have saved us because of what Christ has done. And so God, we proclaim that the message of the gospel has come to us, but by your grace, it's not going to end with us. We will communicate this good news to others by your strength this week. Help us. Help us to be good ambassadors for you. Humble witnesses to you. Make us bold to proclaim your love this week. Give us courage to speak. And encourage us with the fruit. Maybe not immediately in others' lives, but certainly in our own hearts as we fall deeply in love with you. Work through us in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.